Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design with Dara Waxman, a set decorator whose work has appeared in films and TV. But what is truly unique about Dara is her artistic endeavors in total. She's worked at multiple levels within the art department. Her skills include SketchUp, illustration, carving, metalsmithing, goldsmithing. Dara and I talk about crafting for the winter during the summertime. Dara is so fun to talk to. You're going to hear about her dad. He made pictures. Uh, You're also going to hear about working on horror movies. And most importantly, about what it takes to make it in a business where no is not an option. Thank you for listening and taking the time to listen to Convo by Design. Remember that if you subscribe to the podcast, every new episode will be automatically downloaded to your smartphone or other device. You can also check out videos from many of the conversations you hear. A favor, while you're there, please leave us a positive rating and a review. It's greatly appreciated. Enjoy this episode with set decorator Dara Waxman. It's October, and in addition to all of the things we love about fall, one of our favorite design events is here, and Convo by Design, presented by Snyder Diamond, is proud to be working with the West Edge Design Fair again this year. Please make plans to attend this year's event at Santa Monica's Barker Hangar, October 18th through the 21st, and stop by the Convo by Design Programming Lounge, designed by Julia Wong Designs. The goal was simple, provide compelling conversations for the trade and design enthusiasts. That's it. So this year, you'll be hearing from remarkable professionals spanning multiple industries in an effort to offer new ideas and actionable concepts. Get your tickets and additional information at westedgedesignfair.com. And Convo by Design will be broadcasting live, so please come on out, and uh, if you get a chance, come up and say hello. We'll see you there. Convo by Design is presented by Snyder Diamond, always first with what's next in the kitchen and bath. Snyder Diamond is a family-owned and operated company that serves the Southern California design and architecture community, as well as discriminating homeowners through remarkable customer service, and a curated offering of kitchen and bath appliances, fixtures, and finishes. The products at Snyder Diamond include the industry's best, like the full line of Mila appliances. Mila, a family-owned and operated company offering industry-leading products since 1899. This includes a full line of refrigerators, ovens, steamers, cooktops, wine units, coffee machines, dishwashers, ventilation hoods, washers, and dryers. All of these products are made using the highest standards in manufacturing and industry-leading technology to provide a superior class of appliance. Form, function, and future. That's Mila. Pair that with the standard bearer when it comes to customer service, and Snyder Diamond delivers dreamy kitchens that exceed expectations. If that's not enough, right now, and for a very limited time, Mila is offering some amazing and very generous rebates and offers. For details on these and to see the full line of Mila products, visit any of the three Southern California Snyder Diamond locations or visit online at SnyderDiamond.com. No, it's true. It's LA. You can wear your sunglasses inside. Everywhere. Actually, in New York, I did have to go through taking them off because people like, what's up with that? Did you? Really? Yeah, yeah. Is that a thing? Yeah, because in LA, your sunglasses are also a prescription. You're not going to change them because you need sunglasses all the time. And in New York, I had to get regular as well. Like, I really did have to start taking them off. You know, it's not as bright inside as 
as it is in here, too. No, it's funny. It's true. And apparently you can't wear sandals in New York either. And God, God forbid men should wear sandals. It's just, it's, a, it's yeah. verboten. It's kind of a thing. Skirts on the subway, short skirts on, a su- on the subway. There's just different quality of life issues. <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole different code. It's amazing. It really is. I know. I always think of your car as your handbag here. In New York, you have a giant bag. And yeah. here you have your car. Yeah. Like, that's the difference. Yeah, uh, uh, one of many differences. Yes, yes. I'm from both, so I can go on. Are you? Yeah, I grew up here and there. Where did you spend more time? Uh, Probably here over a long period of time. My parents came out to make movies in the 80s, and so since the 80s, late 80s, I've been here. And then I just recently moved back to New York again. So wait a minute. So you are a child of industry parents. I am. What did they do? Uh, my dad was a producer. He made seven pictures, as he would say. And uh, my uncle made some movies, too. And, uh, you know, you always had to work harder if for, with nepotism. Like, I didn't really get any breaks. I'm still not in the union. Really? So, yeah, so it's hard. Um, but I did grow up with it. A lot of scripts in the house. Read this. Um, I, now, in hindsight, I realize that I really did grow up with the literary side as well as the production side. Is that how your dad would say seven pictures? Pictures, pictures. Yeah. Because they were all they were, they were. Uh, <laughs> most of the producers back then were attorneys, you know. Sure. So and they put deals together and pitched. And it was a far different role. It was more. Yeah. It was more like a showrunner in those days than than what producers are today. I think. I think so too, and in some way, almost like a coordinator, not literally, but. Yeah. You pulled all the pieces together, and now there's like 12 people doing just that. When you know, did, it's different. When did you decide that you wanted to be in the business? Um, well, it was ironic, because I was in New York in art school and high school, and I started studying theater arts just because I fell in love with my professor at the time. Uh, he was life drawing in theater arts, and uh, I think... My dad, Howard Smith, was making his first, one of his pictures at the time, and I got to go to set. Oh, he took me to my very first set, which was Nightmare, no, Amityville Horror. Horror, sorry, that's the New York in me. Wait, no, say it again. The Amityville Horror. Horror. <laughs> and um, they were actually shooting in Lodi, New Jersey. And I was in high school, and I had seen the art department build two extra feet onto the side of the house so that they could do the special effects through the window, and I was hooked. That was it. I thought that was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen in my life. And I actually even have pictures of, like, James Brolin on set. And uh, that was, I think that was the cincher. And then years later, when I was still in high school, he was making another film called Pumpkinhead, and Stan Winston was directing it, and uh, I got to go to his studio, and there were a bunch of guys hanging around making sculptures and looking at books on corpses and weird animals, and I was like, this is a job, like people make a living doing this, and that was the second thing that I guess steered my course. So after college, I moved out to LA and started set decorating, propping, set dressing. So it's interesting because I have loved the art department side of the business since I was, I'm trying to remember when this was, I'm definitely going to wind up dating myself here, but um, 
I was a teenager. We lived in the San Fernando Valley, far end of the valley in Chatsworth. And they were filming the exteriors for Beastmaster. And they were filming it in our backyard. We, we lived right up against the railroad tracks and the tunnel and the, the, the rocks, the mountains. And they were, doing a, uh, they were doing the stunts from out there. And it was an 80-foot face wow. of, the, of the rock. And the, the scene was there were four tunnels coming out of the rocks. And then he came out the top. And then there was a, a fall... So it was the whole setup, and they were doing it at night. And because we were living on property, they invited us out to come watch mm -hmm. the whole the shooting. And in the middle of the night, they had to well, they had to build the facade with the four holes coming out sure. that they're shooting over here, which was, they left in our yard. And me and my friends were playing right. in it. It was the greatest thing. And then to see them do the do the the stunts and the falls, but to to see the magic behind it. And that's what's really interesting for me. Mm -hmm. You as a member of the art department, you make the magic. You really do. Do you, do you feel that way? Do you really? Sometimes, yes. sometimes when you I work, in, sometimes when you work in, a, in a job long enough, you kind of forget the special nature of it. But do you feel the, the magic that you lend to the craft? Uh, I'd like to feel it all the time. I mean, I think I do personally. I don't feel like I walk in and there's a collective, oh, you know, or anything. But uh, I think art department specifically, we do feel it. Um, sometimes it's so real that even fellow crew members, they show up and they think it's been there already. Um, so there really is a magic, even in the crew, I think, sometimes, where it's so good that, you know, they think it's real, uh, where they'll get really comfortable and lay down on the bed. No, I'm joking. <laughs> but uh, I do feel it is a sense of magic. Like, we're little elves. We come in at night. We make things happen. You don't see... If we're doing our job right, you kind of don't see us as the crew, even, the daytime crew. If we're art department, we're kind of... We're ahead of you, so you shouldn't see us. So I do feel like we're magic little elves sometimes. And... Uh, yeah, it does. It's like a thread. I appreciate you saying that. At the same time, that's not exactly and totally true. You and you have a role as a set decorator. There's a there's a tradition in the business where you basically yield all of the power and I really love this and it's the concept of opening the set. Oh, yeah. That's great. I love that idea. So tell tell me about that. And do you remember the first set that you opened? and the feeling behind that? Well, I think also, I don't feel like it was a singular set decorator moment. I think it's a production design, you know, you're working with your designer. But I do feel, in a movie years ago, I did The Man from Elysian Fields, um, that there were certain sets where they were specifically dressed or I aged something specifically. There was a pool that I aged very fast, um, sort of had to rally, and it came out amazing, and that was a set that I had opened after a lot of stress, you know, just in production, and that was a real sense of achievement. Um, it's great showing up in the morning, and hopefully everything's done, and there's a little grace in between where you have to start making the changes or accommodate production, where it's still yours. Uh, it's not long. <laughs> it's the minute, you know, crew is on set, you turn over the set. That's what you're really doing is you're giving, you're handing your baby over. You're giving them the keys. You're giving the keys, yeah, where it was yours and your crew. 
And there is a lot of autonomy in set, in set decorating, which I do love. You're below the p political fray. You hopefully are with a great crew and a great production designer, and there's a shorthand. And you've been left to add your creative edge to it. And uh, when it works, it's just a beautiful thing that comes together, even with your guys on the truck, you know, and the prop house. Just, it's just a really wonderful collective experience that takes everybody to make happen. And then there's this pinnacle moment where you deliver it and, you know, hopefully it's appreciated and it's what they wanted, which it usually is. And if not, then you rally, which is the whole other half of the job is well, just rallying. Yeah. And speaking of rally, you know, you and I were talking a little bit before we sat down about working on on unrealistic timelines in unforgiving circumstances <laughs> with unrealistic expectations like working on Christmas in the summer, perhaps. Yes. Well, I just finished a little movie called uh, A Kiss on Candy Cane Lane, which was really lovely, except we were filming Christmas in the middle of the heat wave in Los Angeles, literally in 112 degrees, laying down snow. But thank God we were using a lot of snow blankets, and I discovered a lot of foam downtown um, for the edges, so nothing was really melting, but it was so ironic. And then we were shooting, I had told you, in an ice skating rink, so we were in winter clothing. And you really do come to forget where you are, what time of year it is, because there's an intensity um, in the hours and in with the people you're working with. They're the only people who even pass your periphery sometimes for 16 hours or 12 hours. So you go out into the world and you still think they're the people walking by you. And uh, it becomes a little isolating. But uh, it was really kind of magical making Christmas. And then being able to do it and stepping back and being like, oh my God, we just created Christmas in the middle of the summer, it was supposed to be Milwaukee, and uh, and we pulled it off, and it was crazy. Also for wardrobe, it was crazy wearing, you know, winter clothing and the heat wave. <laughs> well, and it, you know what's funny too is, you say it like it's not a thing, and we pulled it off. Of course, you pulled it off. <laughs> That's true. Do you know why? Because you always pull it off. We do. Because there, is, you don't. There is no no. I know. There's no. There's no no in the industry. There isn't. That's you, what's you, great. you have to get it done. So the only question isn't, are you going to get it done? It's, how are you going to get it done? It's true. I say that a lot. It's also, it forces ingenuity. It forces problem solving. And even though there are egos, it's, they're manageable because it, it's a vacuum. There is someone who will fill your job. At a certain level, there, there is and there isn't. You know, good, really skilled craftspeople are hard to find and uh, talented people. Also, people who know that rallying is part of the craft. Uh, that is something that is a little lost in the world of non-union, low-budget, because there's so many people vying. And it's just a different world. Film's not expensive anymore. Light, you know, anybody could make a movie. But there's still a fundamental craft to filmmaking in Los Angeles. And I say that all the time. I'm like, we've been making movies here for over 100 years. You can't show up and think you're going to change you know the way it's done it is a rallying cry it's a no-no it's a keep moving you know if you don't want to do something then unfortunately or fortunately someone else will fill your you know the void but it's kind of a beautiful thing that it is no-no it shows you what's probable 
what people can do when they really put their minds to it. I was saying, too, I almost wish we would take over the world because we could redecorate and build infrastructure. It might not last forever, but it would look great for a few weeks. And none, you of, the, know. none of the drawers would open. No, but it would be, you know, do you really, how many drawers do you really need? Um, I used to take the train in New York all the time, and the decay it was so bad. And I, instead of taking pictures, I take pictures all the time of beautiful things around Los Angeles or breeze box. Bo- uh, boxes. I would take pictures of the decay inside the MTA, and uh, <laughs> and I would think I, if I got art department in here, like we could fix this so easily. At least get it painted and spackled and redo the tiles, you know, in a week. It, you, you know what? It, it's so funny because you you say that, and it's true. I know it actually is. We, we were talking before about you know when you say that you know it's low budget and it's easy to make a movie. It's, it's easy to make a movie. It's not easy to make a good movie. Of course. And um, one of the things that I love about the art department is the skill and ingenuity, innovation, and craft that you apply to each of these jobs. You know, I, I mean, true. I've asked every set decorator that I've spoken to about this because I love it. And everyone has these unique, amazing stories about creating, you know, bug wings out of, out of nut skins, you know, and what you do and where you get freeze-dried t- tarantulas, you know, most people didn't <laughs> know that was true. a thing, um, you know, and an application of wax to walls to create an ice sculpture or an ice room. Sure. There are things that every designer and every set decorator rather has for this, do you do you have some some favorite craft stories? I do. I had mentioned that I once made a chicken that Bill Paxton had to eat in the dark backwards out of oatmeal, and the effect was that he would gag and he could, you know, devour it and wouldn't get sick. Um, I don't think he was a vegetarian at the time, but uh, I did build that. I built that um, on the carcass out of oatmeal, and it was kind of gross as it should be. And what also comes to mind is for years I worked on Nightmare on Elm Street um, years ago on the fifth sequel, I think. And we had like six units going on that movie. It was pretty astounding. And I was in the basement with Russell Carpenter doing sixth unit special effects for most of the time. And I had to Freddyize everything. And so for months I was Freddyizing everything. And also I was responsible for one of the gloves, which was kind of amazing because in hindsight, like they would never let a hero prop go home with like the six unit prop person. <laughs> and that was me. And I used to drive home with it sometimes. I was visiting and living with my parents at the time. And sometimes I'd leave it at the base of the stairs so I'd freak my mom out in the morning with the, you know, scissor handed gloves. Batio was the prop master on that. And, uh, and then after that, what happens is you become really good at aging things and making things look good, which is kind of a skill set that then you use for the rest of your career. And then after I did Nightmare on Elm Street, I remember doing some more like happy things like fairy tale theater and learning how to make clouds and and so it's like you, you switch genres and you learn different skills in different genres sometimes of movie making. There is a big difference between a set decorator and a designer. Yes. They're very different jobs. They are. It's like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find a, a, an analogy that I can use for this, but I, I really can't do them both. They're, they're both very, very different, even though some people at first glance really will think that it's the same thing. 
do you think that there's any crossover between what you do and what what a designer can do or even a homeowner could do around the house? Um, I do think there's some crossover now because a lot of films are dressed and not built on stages. So I think that's why I've started designing more um, because I've sort of re-entered the field too after an absence. I'm also a goldsmith. And... um, throw that in there and I was making jewelry for years and uh, then I started decorating again I never stopped decorating but it got less and less over the years Um, I'll come back to that but uh, I do think there's crossover I think also people assume that it's a hierarchical thing and that you would want to move up but they're very different crafts and I could just tell you personally what one of the biggest things I've had to learn about designing is I have to think larger I have to think more about surfaces and structure, maybe perhaps a little more architectural. And as a decorator, you know, I'm obsessed with chairs and furnishings for most of my life. I just love chairs. So instead of it being the nuances of the furnishings in the room, it becomes the room itself. And those are two very distinct things. And yes, you can be great at both, perhaps, but you can't pretend that you know, like the one person could just do both. They can. And a lot of producers think like, what's the difference? But there really is a big difference as well as in the craft itself, who communicates to construction and then the, the actual tasks of the production designer versus the tasks of the decorator are just different in an effort to get, you know, art department up and running. You do different jobs. But and, and how does that work for you as a set decorator within, within the larger construct of, of the entire art department? Because you have, you're working on a team, and then the team changes based on the projects that you're working on. Everything changes. It always changes. Yes. Well, often you, find, you work with a production designer for a long period of time, which is what I was missing. So that's probably why I've been able to get jobs designing. It's easier. And... Um, But as a decorator, what I loved was the below the fray, you're your own unit, you are head of a department, just like the props are and, you know, everybody else's wardrobe and grip. And I think sometimes people don't realize that, although you're working for the vision of the production designer and they are your boss, you are also a department head running a crew and a team, and you're somewhat autonomous. And if you have the trust of your director and your designer and your DP, then you're off to the races. You know, you're really lucky and you could go out and do what we, I think as decorators, what the skill we most possess is hunting and finding and... You know, I think we pride ourselves on being able to find things. Yeah, and that's a great point that you bring up as a, you know, that is one of the, one of the similarities that I see between a set decorator and a designer is that as a set decorator, you know, you have, you have very well-established prop houses and you know what's what and where's where. And, and I think that's interesting as a designer, you know, you, you will have a design center or, or showrooms that you hit quite often. How do you find... How do you research? How do you how do you discover new product? Well, it, it's a little bit of magic too. I think if you're you're naturally inclined to notice things all over, like I've lived here for years and on and off, and like I'll, I'll know if there's a new showroom or a new store, I'll notice something new, and I think that's inherent in the skill. So you're kind of always interested in new things, and so they gravitate towards you as well from your contacts and probably most decorators are interested in art and design and furnishings and fashion you know so 
there's those threads. Um, and observation. Because even on a location film, I'll drive into town and I'll clock everything. I know where the tailor is. I know, I might not know what the street's called or the name of anything, but if it was a blue awning and I saw it was a frame shop, you can guarantee that it's a frame shop with a blue awning and, you know, it was on the corner next to the tree. Like, my visual memory is pretty astute. So, perhaps maybe it's a collective thing amongst decorators. We, we clock stuff, we notice things. And so it's sort of a little magic that happens with our skill. Has the business side of it changed at all? You, you know, it used to be every, when dressing a set, everything, it was, you know, if, if it's, you know how long the production is, you're going to go to the prop houses, you're going you're gonna to tag what you want, and then you're, you're covered off and you know everything that you're going to use. Has the business side of it changed because there's more independent production than there ever was before? Yeah, they've almost eliminated prep. Uh, it's really strange. It's as if art department, it was, oh, you always the last considered after location and talent, and it was understood. But now it's like to save money, they won't even, there's really no prep. Like you're lucky if you get a day, if you're dressing, especially on locations. Um, if you're building, it's a little different. But I think the aspect of prep and wrap and that it takes time to do things in this instantaneous world is a little lost because it still takes time. And now what's even harder is traffic and your pickups with your guys. What used to take three hours in Los Angeles basically takes five to six. And so you have to be really good at logistics now, too. And uh, you need a helicopter. <laughs> you, you really do. You really do. And it, it's funny because anyone from outside of the eight one eight three one zero two one three four two four outside of that, um, people just really do not realize that mm -hmm. you know L.A. at a at a time in the eighties, it really did. It took you know twenty thirty minutes to get from one side of the county to the other. It's, it, that's how long it there took. There was a saying, when I moved here in the 80s, there was literally a saying, it was vernacular, that everywhere, where are you going? Oh, it'll take 20 minutes. It'll yeah. take 20 minutes. Yeah. That's all it took. And now, forget it, five hours. <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> no mean, seriously, well, for you and for production to get the truck to the prop houses to do the load-in, and then, or even once it's loaded, then to get it out and get it unloaded. Yeah, no, totally. This, it, yeah. That's how long it takes. Um, do you have a favorite project that you've, that you've worked on over the course of your career? Oh, yeah. I mean, some of them were a really long time ago, which aged me. I think Nightmare on Elm Street stands out in my heart because I was so young, and I realize now what master craftsmen everybody, the people were on that crew. C.J. Strawn was the production designer. I find it interesting speaking with creatives because many will, if you ask them if they have a favorite, many will say, no, they're all my favorite. Right, right. Which is not true. You just don't want to say it. And, right. that's okay. and that's okay. Others, it's like, oh yeah, I, here were some favorites. But here's why. It's not that they were more enjoyable or less enjoyable. It's that I just enjoyed them more. So with Nightmare on Elm Street, did you say that you worked on five, or did you work on, on multiple? Oh, no, I worked on the number five. Yeah, you episode. worked on five. But the thing was, we had six units going, and it was still in the day where you built. So uh, they were building upside-down Escher sets in yeah. the giant warehouse. And so I think it was that that sold me. Well, and I'm, and I'm, I'm trying to remember five, because some all when they came out and but i remember five was the 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 higher the number went the more comic booky 
yes. they got. And the, the more kind of ridiculously funny. Yes, but you know? it was also before even the green screen. So everything right. had to really be done. Like we, she falls out of a, the hallway, it gets wet, and we shot it in reverse with a, a swimming pool, like a blow-up swimming pool, and built the hallway sideways. And she literally fell into the swimming pool, and then we reversed the splash or something. Like that kind of movie stuff, which would never happen now. I, mean, I love the shot. It's George Lucas sitting with the props and set dressing he had for Star Wars, and then he's in an empty room with a green screen. Um, I'm still very crafty-oriented, so not that it isn't fun doing green screen too or building fake little sets in front of other things but when i think of the movies that i love it was that like that building of sets where you where you are now in the career in in the in the scope of the career do you have i've noticed that many set decorators many who work in the in the industry sort of gravitate towards certain styles or genres or you know a lot will work on superhero movies and that's kind of their thing mm -hmm. is the superhero movie or some are you know dramas or crime or do you have a thing I don't think I have a thing I think it was ironic with the Christmas because I sort of became the Christmas um, expert with snow and then I got called on to an episode of meet the Pete's to help them with their Christmas scene um, so that was kind of fun so yes I think you can get I don't want to say pigeonholed, but you can wind up doing a certain thing because you become good at it. Um, I think just my natural inclination is if I do something very Christmassy, like now I would love to do something very urban and graffiti oriented and dark or, you know, I'd like to swing the pendulum. Um, I was doing a lot of bedrooms and contemporary houses for a little while and then the Christmas movie came up, so that was kind of fun. But I like to mix it up. Um, I was very good at period peri uh, pieces for a while. Like I, I was a history major in college, and so I think in early on I had really become like I had a, was doing a lot of period pieces. How do you, how do you pitch yourself as a set decorator? I, I mean, it's a it's a tough it's a tough thing to do. You know what I mean? Yes. It, so it's. You have relationships in the business. You have producers that you work with. You have, you know, directors. You have, you have prop masters. You have people in, in the art department, and people are always looking out to try to help other people. That, and that's one of the things that I absolutely love about the business is that everyone really is trying to help each other. But aside from that, how do you, how do you steer the career? How do you steer towards projects that you really want to work on? Um, I think that's a good question because it's hard. You have to, it's perseverance. I really don't think there's a magic pill. I think you have to persevere. Um, you can't, I notice now that there's a lot of stuff out there. The rates are very low. There isn't a lot of um, time to really create art. They're just looking sometimes for somebody to do something. So I think you have to look for the projects that make it so that you are leaving your mark. You're not just, you know, we need a blank wall to shoot against, you know, and you're not just getting the wall. I think you have to stay mindful of things like that, uh, which is not to say that you have the luxury of saying no to work often in this business, uh, but it's a delicate balance. And I think perseverance is really the, the key. And building a body of work, you know, after a while, 
getting your images together that you could show. And then sometimes a th something emerges that you don't even realize, like you're good at or a strong suit. Um, and so maybe you can push that a little bit. When did you become a goldsmith? Oh, <laughs> I had stopped working in film and I moved to Europe and I was married and we were traveling all over the place. And we walked into an atelier of a friend of my ex-husband and uh, there was this amazing woman, Gudula Roch of Dusseldorf and Rheinmetall is her shop. She's still there. And uh, I was like, I want to do this. And they were like, oh, you can. We have something called the apprentice system still in Europe. And I was like, what? And they were like, yeah, you can apprentice for Gudula. And so the joke was we spoke with hand and foot because my German wasn't good. I speak German now. And her English wasn't great. And it was just a willingness. And it was so cool. She t We melted in the shop. We cast in the shop. It wasn't, you didn't farm anything out. You made everything. We pulled chain. I made chain. Um, and that was it. I was like hooked with the molten metal and I did that for a while. And then I came back and I was doing that for like 10, 15 years. I've made a lot of wedding rings. They're all still married, most of them, which is kind of great. And, uh, yeah. And then I would do like a film a year. I, I called it my fix. Like it was this skill I had that I was good at. So I would do a commercial occasionally or decorate a movie and I would, jump between this very collective experience and then this very singular experience which is you know goldsmithing at a bench by yourself so it was always fun so with all that going on what's what's next film I'm, I mean I still make jewelry because I love it and uh, I don't think I'll ever give that up it's like I've become a sculptor in it and uh, but I do love making movies and I'm really committed to it now because I realize it's a skill that I possess and it's a gift to be part of this industry. And I realized I grew up at Warner Brothers. You know, I used to show up with like 5,000 and Eddie and Ronnie on the dock would be like, Waxman's here with 5,000. All right, let her take stuff. And, you know, it's that industry is kind of gone. And so I realized that I'm part of something for a long time. And like I said, perseverance. And you do make amazing friends and you work with amazing people. And the Set Decorator Society is just so tremendous because there's usually of course there's only one of us on many features there's only one position but you you don't really work together so this is what makes it so great the coming together and everybody has very similar experiences where you've been off isolated in your experiences and that's what makes it so tremendous and an honor yeah absolutely and speaking of honors this was an honor i really enjoyed the time thank you daryl waxman Th thank you Convo by Design is proud to be working with Vendôme Furniture. Design culture, it's the key to their success. It's what pushes them to consistently create new collections that give spaces a new dimension. They create dialogue between environment and form. Vendôme pieces can transform the simplest space into one filled with glamour that is both unique and extraordinary. And isn't that what design is all about? Creating atmospheres where you can take hold of life and enjoy it to the fullest? Vendôme products are simple and elegant, contemporary and exceptionally comfortable. Their crafted, modern, durable, molded resin, glass, and metal designs are unique and they beg to be enjoyed. They search the planet for the right designers that embody the Vendôme spirit and work together to create remarkable pieces into an exclusively Vendôme mode of expression. And if you haven't seen Vendôme before, you can check them out in uh, some of 
the Convo by Design videos you'll find on our YouTube channel. But you can find them in their showrooms at the D&D Building in New York, Wynwood in Miami, and the Pacific Design Center here in LA, or online at vondom.com. <laughs>